uh, we thought we'd give a little bit of, of background on ourselves and how we got into the into the business before we started out on on some of our thoughts on on uh, our perspective on state support for higher education. I kind of fell into government relations work when I was an undergrad. I was selected uh, on a whim. I thought I'd apply for the legislative internship down at the Capitol, kind of major of the week type of person. Went down to the Capitol my junior year and kind of fell in love with public policy. And from there, was a member of the Student Association Board, then Executive Director, and then decided to go to law school as a mechanism to put another tool in my box to uh, to better contribute to uh, public policy in the state. So I went to law school with an eye on uh, remaining involved in politics and public policy. Uh, and then as my uh, bio said, I worked at the, uh, at the state bar as their prime lobbyist and now here at the, at the Board of Regents. So I wasn't born a lobbyist. I kind of uh, fell into it, but uh, that's, that's a little bit about my story. Greg, how did, how did you become a lobbyist? As Christine saying, not too many people plan to be lobbyists, whether in high school or in college. I started out to be a college teacher in political philosophy and uh, didn't finish my dissertation, but while I was working on it and thinking maybe law school would be my future, I got a job just to kill some time, make a little money at the Arizona State Senate. Uh, and uh, I actually, instead of disliking it, loved it. There was a golden time and in state legislative leadership. We had some fabulous legislators. There were many who weren't fabulous, but the people who were leading the place were really good. I loved it. I stayed there. I got to be chief of staff and then worked on what was the Medicaid deal, the access uh, deal, and the governor made me uh, director of Medicaid. So, but for years afterwards, I only did that for a year. I, quit it. I got tired of removing car bombs from my car because <laughs> in the early stages of Medicaid program, but it was always a bloodbath. The hospitals, the docs, everybody was fighting to change regulations. And so the first three or four years, it was awful. So I was happy to get out of that with my wife and come to the U of A in 1984. Uh, but for years after that, the Joint Legislative Budget Committee staffer who did the universities would always say, well, the only reason he would say to the president, the reason that you're having so much trouble getting money is that the access program is sucking all the money out of the world, and it's Fahey who caused the whole thing. It really worked. So I was, I had this terrible guilt of how we created the program at Eight Arizona. But basically, uh, I uh, left the uh, the access program and then migrated and was hired by the U of A, and they put up the mix of '84, much to my amazement. So why don't we get started and uh, let's start with our yeah. with our first slide and we'll talk a little bit about uh, state support. Go ahead. Well, basically what you see here is the standard slide that uh, shows you what percent of the state general fund is going to the university system. And you can see that uh, over time, we're starting back in 79, and uh, people always say to me, what's the reason for the base year? It's got to be a trick. You're choosing it to advantage yourself in some way. Actually, the reason is that a guy, the guy who started doing this started to do it back around 78 or 9. Uh, it was his idea to portray this. So you see that there has been a steady decline. Now, this is not the kind of information that is without controversy when you reveal it. Because obviously, uh, as staffers have said to us over the years, 
if you were to be doing pretty well in terms of your appropriation universities, but other things came along, like Medicaid in the fiscal year 1983, that increased spending in other areas, you could still be holding your own or doing well and still see a decline. So it's a mixed message, but you know, every, you know, all the city out there, as Disraeli said, there are lies, damn lies, and statistics. There's a certain mendacity in portraying things this way, but it does show that in terms of state priorities, the university system has been declining and in terms of the share of the general fund. Did you have anything you wanted to add? Well, I'll say just a little more than that, and that is the university system, though, in terms of its history, if you go back into the 70s and the 80s, and I started the Senate in 1975, every year the university sort of juggernaut was very powerful for all three schools. The U of A, though, was the most powerful lobbying force because they had a united community behind them. AFU was part of a much bigger area, and they never had really intense support from more than two or three legislators, whereas the U of A, they could, they could count on much more support from most of the delegation that came out of Southern Arizona. So they often would have eight or 10 or 12 legislators really behind the U of A's budget. So every year, uh, the U of A, though, didn't just advantage itself. It really drove the appropriation for all through schools. They may have taken care of themselves with the U of A a little better, but they still made sure that everybody got a major hunk of money. So that we have these decision packages, these new program initiatives, and typically, in the 70s and in the, in the 80s, uh, the university, U of A would get, and ASU would get the same amount as a sort of two, two, and one unwritten formula, uh, where one was NAU, two, two for ASU and U of A, and four to six million dollars in new programs. That was on top of good funding for enrollment growth, and then if you open a new building, you have the utilities for that. Uh, and you've got all this ancillary money for retirement systems and everything else. So while we always complain about we always wanted a better deal, that's the nature of the universities to have ideas of, of how to uh, get, more, get money and be able to spend it on, on great things to keep the deans and the, and the department heads happy and the students happy. The fact is we were doing quite well compared to what started to happen later. And what started to happen later is uh, the legislature became much more right-wing after the 92 election. The governor became was more right-wing, and there was a real hostility to any money going to state government, especially universities. Now, often we don't think of ourselves as part of state government, but they do. So they starved the beast, we were part of the beast, and the idea of you know more money going to tax cuts and more money going to uh, other things, even like prisons, they became a factor. Plus, you had the competition from Medicaid, and as I say, from prisons. So you see this decline where we're not being starved uh, in all these years, but the kind of new programs, the kind of support we've enjoyed after the war and into the very early 90s, really, as you can see, when, once we, it started a little earlier than that, but there's a precipitous decline that's going on throughout the 90s. Well, and just to add for some perspective, um, we're in, in 1979, the total state budget was under a billion dollars. Today, uh, in the total general fund appropriations to the state in, in fiscal 10, which, which we're in now, actually at the beginning of fiscal 10, was $9.3 billion. Uh, university funding over that time, we started out in 79 with a little over $192 million. 
Today, even after, after the $231 million in cuts we've had over the last two years, university funding is at $900 million. So, you know, when you look over, when you look over this 30-year period, the university system now receives pretty close to the amount of money that the whole state uh, received in general fund uh, appropriations back in 79. Can we go to the yeah. next slide? <coughs> this is a, a slide of the state investment uh, per $1,000 of, of personal income. This is adjusted for for inflation and, and shows you how much back in the early 70s was, was dedicated uh, to university funding and, and where we're at now just under uh, uh, $10 of uh, state investment in, uh, in higher ed per uh, $1,000 of personal income. Greg, do you want to talk about this slide anymore? Hey, this is underscoring uh, a similar theme to what we saw on the other slide. It's showing a difference as a result of uh, analyzing a different data set. But you see how there is a decreasing amount of money uh, being earmarked for universities. And again, I emphasize it's several reasons. One, the more ideological uh, legislature that uh, is, is more antagonistic to universities than they used to be. And secondly, the, the competition, uh, you know, back in the uh, 70s and uh, up until 1983, the total state investment in indigent health care was zero. Not not a single dollar of state money went into it. Today it's several billion dollars because of the Medicaid program starting. Prisons, because of mandatory sentences and all, they started really getting underway in the, the, the consequence of mandatory sentencing, which led to both capital and ongoing uh, costs of maintaining the prisons. That really got going big time. So uh, what you're seeing are consequences of a number of intersections that are national trends, uh, not just state trends. Well, and also, um, you know, uh, other other growth in the state over over that period of time, our explosive population growth, what that mix of, of people looks like, uh, the constitutionally protected spending for things like uh, things like K-12 and the and the growth that's in K-12, all of those have have an impact. On the next slide, uh, we've got uh, we've we've got a 30-year history of um, of growth in both the general fund and and the university system. You'll often hear uh, a case made that um, the universities are, are growing at a, at a quicker pace than the rest of state government. You'll hear, you'll hear that argument as tuition increases. Uh, tuition increases are higher uh, over, over a long period of time. I think the average tuition increase is, is about 8 or 9% over a 30-year period. Um, but, but this shows that state government actually grew at a quicker rate than, than university funding. So, uh, over the last decade, you can see that, that the rate at which um, university uh, uh, general fund appropriations grew was much smaller than the rest of state government, which is just another way to look at the other uh, data we've shown. Then the next slide is a little uh, look at, at U of A and, uh, and specific revenue history for U of A. So I'll let Greg take this one. Yeah, this, this is focused now, as Christine said, on one university, and that's the U of A. And it looks, uh, it's kind of busy looking, but it makes some interesting points. You see how the general fund is cruising along. And this is their 1987 constant dollars, and they're using, though, the higher education price index. So they're using the, the uh, in those constant dollars, you can see how the general fund is moving along, and then it, it, it 
go down, and then you can see how after a bit of a recovery, it falls off a bit of a cliff, although nothing like what might yet happen. You can see also that tuition, which was a much more modest player until recently, has become a much bigger factor. And those of you who pay tuition uh, and are following the current discussions about increases, you can certainly get that sense. Uh, the other thing that is significant is the grants and contracts, obviously, because here you see uh, both the indirect costs and the direct costs. And we're lucky in this state. We have never had the legislature appropriate indirect costs, which, you know, there certainly are arguments in favor of that, but they have never seriously approached that outside of a little interest the financing administration showed in getting into that business. They've never done it. We keep our indirect costs. Uh, the grants and contracts, you can see, have grown tremendously, and indirect costs have grown handsomely as well. Uh, and then uh, 301 TRIP is that proposition that passed in 2000 that gives us a fraction of the sales tax primarily for research activities. And you also see how gifts and endowments have, have grown. But I think two of the biggest factors you, you take note of is how the general fund has become, as you might expect, given the other slides you've seen, less prominent in the funding of the institution while the overall money moving through the administration through the institution has gone up significantly in this period. Uh, it's driven by uh, research, it's driven by tuition, and it's also driven by uh, gifts and endowments, and even the auxiliaries are up a bit. So the overall amount of money is pretty healthy. You, know, you could always use more, except the general fund is not. And the next slide is a side-by-side -side of, of university revenues from uh, 99-2000 to uh, just this fiscal year, fiscal 10. And this one shows that just here at the, at the U of A, you're going to have the same case at both NAU and at ASU. You can see the portion of, of the whole funding for the university that used to come from the general fund has shrunk significantly. In, in fiscal 10, it was 34% of funding for the institution, and now it's down to 22% just in the last 10 years. And falling. So that's just more of the thing to make the point for you. But it's, it's interesting to note, too, when you look at this, that, that general fund and, and tuition and tuition-funded financial aid are both, those are pretty much about half of the pie in, in both of these examples. Tuition has really had to, to fill the gap that, uh, that the general fund has made for the university system. And Arizona is especially uh, cheap in providing financial aid from the general fund. So that aside from the federal money, which is obviously a very hefty amount, the, most of what counts as kind of state financial aid doesn't come from what we call the state. It comes from the university, from tuition. And as you all know, one way we justify the tuition increases beyond sheer necessity is the notion that we're able to protect many of these students by channeling uh, over 17% of the tuition monies to need-based uh, financial aid, and we also do And just for some perspective on that, there there are other states who spend hundreds of millions of dollars on need-based financial aid in addition to supporting uh, the institutions. In Arizona, the only uh, real program that we have is the financial aid trust. The students know that they pay a fee each semester that goes into the financial aid trust, and the state matches that two to one. Uh, 
it's a little less than two to one right now because they've, they've just maintained funding from the fiscal 08 level, um, but that's $10 million a year. And institutional financial aid uh, is the, the money that comes from you know, tuition to go to support both need-based and merit-based financial aid is over $300 million system-wide. The next slide is, uh, is a demonstration of the university, uh, the university, the state investment in the university uh, system. Over the last uh, couple of years, the, um, the federal stimulus dollars had a, had a big impact on both helping the uh, the state uh, with the fiscal crisis uh, starting in, in uh, fiscal uh, fiscal nine and then now in fiscal ten uh, and and had as you can see here the difference between the yellow line and that red that red line is helping us maintain the university budgets with one-time federal stimulus money. The university system and K-12 and community colleges are protected within that federal law by a maintenance of effort level. Uh, the state has to provide funding at the 2006 level uh, in order to maintain uh, the, the stimulus dollars coming to the state. That protection is through fiscal 11. So the budget being discussed right now um, is we are protected by the federal maintenance of effort. So basically, the universities and the K-12 system are very close to that. They, they really can't cut too much more out of us without requesting a waiver from the federal government. Uh, there isn't a wait, an interest right now in asking for a waiver unless the sales tax fails to pass the voters. At that point, there'll just be too little money in the state to be able to fund uh, the things that need to be funded, and there's an interest from... Uh, from the uh, leadership in the legislature and the governor's office to possibly ask for, for a waiver if the, um, if the sales tax in May doesn't, uh, doesn't pass. But you can see over, over time, um, adjusted for inflation, the, the state dollars per full-time equivalent student, um, you know, it went up and down over time, but you can see over these last couple of years, the universities have taken a, over the last two fiscal years have taken a $231.5 million cut. That's a cut to the base. Um, that, that funding will, will take a long time for that funding to come back to the university system if it does come back to the university system. It's been filled in with one-time stimulus dollars, but you can see this dramatic uh, drop in that yellow line and our concerns after fiscal 11, when there's no longer the protection of the maintenance of effort level, what will funding look like for the university system? Where will the university system, higher education and education, be as a priority for the state? Yeah, in your talk of the cliff, or some would call it the abyss, to be a little more dramatic, and then the issue of what's starting to happen in 11 with the idea that if there's no more stimulus money, and there's some talk in Washington, I'm no expert on Washington, but there's some talk in this jobs bill that there might be some more money for education, there might be maintenance of effort that would be continued, but obviously there's a lot of pushback even from Democrats because of the concern about the national debt. So we don't know what's going to happen, and we'll get into that a bit more with some other slides, but you can see the value of the stimulus money in stopping us from being really in terrible shape. Uh, so with that, we can... One other, uh, one other item just on that federal jobs bill. Um, the Senate passed a bill that the, the U.S. Senate passed their jobs bill, which didn't include funding for uh, continued stimulus funding for education. 
the thing to remember though is that that what was in the house bill was more money for the state dedicated for education which helps fill that gap but at the same time while the original stimulus money allowed the state to cut back on the base budgets and then basically backfill into higher ed and k-12 so that they weren't hit quite as hard more more money that would come into the states to support higher education wouldn't necessarily help the long-term budget situation, even the short-term budget situation of the state. So while it might help float the universities and, and K-12, even if there was more stimulus money to come in, if, if the state doesn't have more revenue coming in, then uh, we're still going to have the same situation where uh, the state's just going to have difficulty paying its bills, and, and uh, that's what legislators are, are struggling with now. It might help fill the gap, but that gap might get, might get bigger. Why don't we go to the next slide? Greg, do you want to talk about this one? This is one of my favorites. <laughs> so, I mean, this starts really pointing out that You're a glutton. <laughs> so, you, you, can't, you can see what this is showing you. This isn't the university budget. This is the state of Arizona. And basically, you're looking at uh, general fund. Uh, so the purple, blue, purple, whatever that is, that is showing you the state expenditures marching along as an estimate. And then you can see the revenue in red, and then you can see what the stimulus money is doing in green. And the point of this is that the expenditures are still way above revenue, including what is being supported by stimulus. So how can that be? Well, it's because a lot of tricks are still being used. Uh, you read about how they're selling the state uh, Senate, the state house building. They're selling all these buildings and leasing them back, which adds, you know, there's a big debt problem, though, that's being created. You've got to make payments and lease payments from that. But even this very right-wing legislature didn't know how to do. So we are supporting a lot more money going out the door of the state than we have revenue coming in. And as you see in that red, red line, compared to the blue line, there is this huge gap. and you go out to 14, you can see expenditures that are up in the vicinity of 14 billion or so, and you can see revenues that are under 11 billion. And by the way, this is a year-old slide. The, yeah. the gap is actually bigger than that. The this. gap is now bigger. Now, you might also say, since we have a bunch of conservatives running the state, and since even if you're not a conservative, if you're not crazy, why would anyone assume that spending would continue out of control like that? Well, it's because we have voter-protected and federal law-protected programs. And then some are just practically protected. Now, that's not us. People don't see us as something that has to be protected. But much of Medicaid is protected by federal law and by the, the Voter Protection Act that was passed in 1998 that says that the voters voted on something that legislature effectively can't change they can make minor changes to further the purpose uh, of, the, uh, of the ballot proposition that the voters passed in. So a good hunk of Medicaid is protected, uh, and then you have K-12, much of K-12 is protected, and then you also have the issue of the prisons, which everyone's always afraid to cut because then murderers will be released and all that stuff. So you end up with 50-60% of the budget that not only can't be cut, you're not supposed to be able to stop it from growing according to the mandates. You have to pay what eligible people come in. Now, that's under discussion. The governor and the legislature are trying to change that. Uh, and right now, they're trying to roll back Prop 204, 
which was passed in 2000 and greatly expanded the uh, eligibility criteria for Medicaid. Uh, but that, you know, we'll see what happens with all that. But the point is that if the brakes aren't put on state spending, uh, and the universities obviously are not a big fact, they're not assuming uh, more money going to universities. This is assuming flat budgets for universities, not butchery, but no new money. So that's one of the reasons why this right-wing conservative woman I've known for many years named Governor Jan Brewer came into the governorship, never met a tax she liked really, uh, uh, and suddenly said, we need to raise taxes because even with that penny tax increase that raises about a billion dollars a year, as you can see, if you throw a billion more revenue in there, you're still going to have a big problem. So that's, you know, I hate to depress everybody, but even at Prop 100, which is that penny on the sales tax proposition that's going to be voted on on May 18th, even if that goes, we still have a big spending problem compared to revenue problem that's going to go on for a number of years. This is this bounce back in a year or two. And this, and this graph was put together, I, I believe this is a revenue estimate that, that does not assume the sales tax increase. That's my so, that will, so that will have some effect on closing that gap, but a penny brings in, in, in rough numbers, about $800 million to the state uh, right now, the way sales tax is going. So, so if you assume for, for a brief period for three years that that sales tax passed, that gap would be closed by less than a billion dollars. Yeah. Um, just as some perspective, uh, the, the universities are about 10% of the, of the state budget right now. K-12 is about 40% of the state budget. Corrections is about 10% of the state budget, just to give you an idea of, of, the, of, of the size of things. Medicaid is, is, a, is, a, is a large chunk of the budget, and, and you know as some things are countercyclical, just like uh, higher ed is countercyclical, and people can't find a you know find a job. They decide to go back to school and retool, either at community college or a university. Um, things like uh, access and, and Medicaid programs are also countercyclical. There's more of a demand when there's uh, less uh, gas in the in the state's engine. Yeah, and this definitely does not include any assumption of the passage of Prop 100 or any tax increase. Okay. So, but again, the mitigation. You get a billion dollars in there, and I'm rounding on the high side of what that pay brings in, still have a very big problem. Obviously, if you can cut back on Medicaid, which a lot of people don't want to do, uh, then you could, uh, you, could, you could shave off another uh, half a billion plus uh, on the top end of the blue line. But this is the dominant reality that is going to affect our futures as Arizona residents and as university people. This is a fact that's going to have a lot to do with uh, our lives in the next uh, decade. If we go to the next slide, we'll talk a, a little bit about uh, something a little more cheerful. <laughs> uh, the, the Board of Regents, as you uh, may have read in the papers, is looking at uh, revising the, the system's architecture. Arizona, as you probably all know, uh, is a very unique state in that we have our research universities in the state and we have community colleges, but unlike other states, uh, we don't have many private options. We don't have a, a state-supported uh, junior college system or, or state college system that in, in other states uh, gives uh, the community, gives, gives citizens a lower cost option uh, for degrees. The, the model of a research university is the highest cost model that there is. And in Arizona, the way our system has developed, we've got 
uh, two uh, research universities and one research intensive uh, university. So, so we're really providing uh, education at higher education at, at one of the highest costs. The, the regents want to take a look at providing um, lower cost options, not at the expense of the university system uh, that we have right now, but uh, enhancing the university system. We have a very low college going rate in, in the state of Arizona. We need, in order for the state to be economically competitive, we need more people with baccalaureate degrees uh, to be uh, living here. And as, as part of that, the, the Board of Regents has been working with the universities to identify new high access, uh, lower cost options that would allow both a lower cost to the students and a lower cost to the, to the state. Um, in, in other states like New York, you've got the, the, the largest uh, growth in the system, the, the largest amount of students is, is in that lower cost tier, not in the higher cost tier. Uh, right now we're kind of upside down. We've got most of the people getting baccalaureate degrees are in these high cost programs. So in the long term, something like this will stay, save both citizens tuition dollars and will also save the state money. In the short term, it's, it's going to cost something. And when you look at this slide, it, il it illustrates a couple things. The blue bars are the um, selected peer institutions for, for each of our institutions. Uh, the red bars are the current state funding per FTE. You'll see that ASU's uh, state funding per FTE uh, is about, I'm sorry, operational funding. This isn't state funding. This is total operating funds. ASU's cost is about $15,000. U of A's cost is about $19,000. And NAU's cost is about $13,400. The lower cost options that are being looked at would all be about $9,500. What's being aimed for is an investment by students in the state that's roughly equal to Pell Grants. Um, well, I wanted to point this out was you've got three different institutions that are receiving money at three different levels. There's often an argument from, from some folks that, um, that the investment per FTE should be equal across all three institutions, but each institution is unique. Some have uh, more costly programs, some have more of a mix of graduate students which are more expensive, some provide more um, undergraduate social science degrees which is less expensive. Uh, the devil's really in, excuse the expression, the devil's in the details. So uh, just because uh, one institution gets more funding than another doesn't mean that, that, that those students aren't valued just as much. It means that we need to look at what the, what the actual costs are per institution. Um, hopefully at the lower cost model where you're not going to have uh, research uh, programs where you're going to be able to provide um, uh, more, uh, more uh, teaching-heavy atmosphere for faculty members. Um, it, it will be it will be a lower cost overall. But you can see here the difference in in the institutions and the and the pull you get from members of the legislature who look at this and frankly would say, well, why doesn't ASU have nineteen thousand dollars per for operating expenses and. And uh, the university system response and, and U of A's response is, well, you know, we've got a medical school, we've got uh, other programs that are mandated, and you need to balance the high-cost programs uh, and the state investment in that in order to, to come up with an um, adequate amount of funding per, per student. Greg, did you want to add anything to that? 
Sure, and I guess we can sort of move on to our future predictions. So, I mean, you know, this is where Christine is the regent's lobbyist, so she needs to be diplomatic <laughs> about charges by other universities, mainly the one that's headquartered in Tempe, and you don't get into this much. When the big boys fight, it's always smart to stay on the side and pick up the uh, the, uh, the, the scraps that fall from the table can be very large. So any of wisely not getting in the middle of this. It's only a, it's a site that's been around a while and it's gotten more intense lately. And obviously the U of A has always said, look, we've got over 100 years of history and how these schools have grown. All the reasons for the difference can never be fully known, but we do know, as Christine said, that we have more expensive science graduate programs and we have a med school and pharmacy, and we have a number of factors. Uh, so the, the thing goes on and on, but the, the biggest point is that I always make is, I've been doing this a long time, and U of A and ASU left the legislative uh, smorgasbord, uh, basically saying, we didn't all get what we wanted in every case, but we thought it was a fair deal. So you don't go back after the game and say, let's adjust the score, even though the rules seem to have been fair for the last 30 years or so. So I don't, I don't see this as getting in it. There's no easy fix for this anyway, because there's no new money around, and the only way to fix it is to raid, you know, move money from one university to another. I don't think that's going to happen. But as Christine said, you know, moving to sort of the, the issue before us is what's the future likely to be? I'm not going to hit you with that horrible line about the Chinese character for a crisis and saying, I won't do that because I heard that too many times. Uh, people used to, uh, the former boss I had, if I was going down the tubes in Medicaid, used to say that to me, he was Governor Babbitt, and I'd say, you know, one more time, and I'm, I'm going to do something. <laughs> to the moon, Alice. <laughs> so the basic thing is, is that, you know, you can see the picture here, where you've got you know, political opposition to the local universities that surfaced uh, nearly 20 years ago in a very, uh, very strident way in Arizona. You had competition from other things that were suddenly, you know, had a, had a lot more pizzazz, or at least uh, they tugged at the heartstrings more, uh, pizzazz in prisons and heartstrings in K-12 and in uh, Medicaid. Uh, on the other hand, you recently, we've fallen into one of the worst financial crises that any state has in the country, where we're either one or two worst off, uh, not actual dollars, but as a percentage of general fund deficit. And as we've shown you, there's even with a tax increase, which is far from certain, we still have a big imbalance. And even if you cut back a bit on Medicaid, which easily may not happen, so that you curtail some of that growth that's not coming our way, you still have a big problem. So, you know, what else happens? Well, some of the major research university crowds in other states and the California system, they put on the table the idea of the feds not just having a temporary bailout, but getting in the permanent business of supporting some research universities. I'm sure you've all heard about that. The only problem is they're not this, you know, you know how that game will be played. It'll be me and whoever, you know, me is the California school here or there. They're not going to deal with a bailout on a permanent basis or sustain very many schools. And secondly, with all of the concerns the feds have about their own deficit problems, which won't be cured in the next three or four years, it's hard for me to believe we're going to see a major federal program to bail out research universities. So then you also hear, and Ted Downing was in the legislature, he certainly heard it many a time. You know, what you guys need to do, say the people who don't want to have to be responsible for funding us in the legislature, 
if you start getting more patents to market and you could bring in millions and millions and millions. Well, I think we all know that you know, we to do a better job of this and that. But frankly, getting some big patents developed into millions and millions or hundreds of millions, like Gatorade, it's kind of like winning the lottery. A lot of our research is basic research, uh, as it should be, and a lot of it isn't ever going to lead to gigantic patents. You keep pushing at that, and you try to get more money in, but that is not any kind of solution. So what I do believe is that we're not going to go down the tubes as a research university, because we're not just talking about keeping higher ed alive. We're talking about continuing the mission of the research university. We'll develop these new ways of delivering higher education that Christine mentions. Now, there's a risk there, too, because legislators could easily say, we want to buy a lot more of that and a lot less of this research university stuff, which is expensive, and we don't know what we get anyway. But the fact is, we have to do a better job, obviously, of explaining what we are providing with the research university. And I do think we will maintain a base support, which may easily be lower than it is today, but still a, a basic substratum of support and core support. And then I do think private fundraising will be accentuated even more. And I hate to say it, but I think tuition is going to get noticeably higher and stay higher. I don't think it's just going to go up uh, on a temporary basis, as some would say. I, I think we're going to see tuition. I'm not saying it's going to be $20,000 in constant dollars right now, but I do think over the next five years we will see some more you know, noticeable tuition increases. Obviously, financial aid will also be moved along, but I, I do have a lot of concerns about, at some point, you're obviously, you can't, there's no magic here. You can't protect everybody with financial aid and increase tuition. You know, that, that's not going to happen. But you still get pressure on the middle class, and you do change things from what they were, where this was a real cheap tuition state, and it was a very pleasant place for many people, even if folks think of it in an inefficient way. So my own prediction is we'll do some new ways of providing education. We'll have more campuses and more places, and that will all be good. I do think the research university will survive, but one way you can justify higher tuition is if you do have these other places you can go and get cheaper degrees. So I think it's going to be a different world than we knew in the post-war era, especially in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, which I think we've gone in for our lifetime, our grandchildren's lifetime, but I don't think we're going away as a research university. I just think we're going to have to be, we're, we're clever people, and we'll be clever, and we will adapt, but it won't be the same. And two, two things to add to that. First, uh, uh, not cheaper, less expensive, high-quality degrees. <laughs> 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 and, uh, and, and secondly, um, you know, I was, I was a student advocating, uh, you know, when I, was, when I was an undergrad here for low tuition, the low-tuition model. Uh, about uh, 10 years ago, actually just after I was on the Board of Regents, um, the, uh, the research bore out that low tuition meant low financial aid because the state wasn't investing in financial aid. So it actually wasn't affordable for students to attend the universities because uh, it first sounds uh, counterintuitive. Uh, even though tuition was low, you have all of these other costs of attendance that couldn't be borne by, by students. So the regents tried to move to a uh, moderate tuition, uh, higher financial aid model. Um, other states have very high tuition, very high financial aid. The regents tried to get something in the middle, and now with this fiscal crisis, each time tuition is set, 
the regents are, are very cognizant of how much money they ask the universities at a bare minimum to, uh, to put toward financial aid, I believe toward need-based financial aid. Uh, and I believe that amount right now is, is approaching 20% of, of tuition dollars. So uh, that's, that's something to, to keep in mind as well.